It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. I wanted someone to say this is really hard, right? And, and like, maybe that sounds like nothing, but I think that's actually the thing that would have made the biggest difference for me. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. We're recording today on June 23rd, 2020, and I'm really excited and honored by the fantastic panel of guests that we have today to talk about an issue that is in some ways very niche to a certain subset of the Jewish community in America, the issue of mikvah in the coronavirus. We'll talk about what that means and what its consequences are. In some ways niche, but in a whole bunch of other ways representative of a wide set of intersecting questions that uh, I think actually have universal significance and widespread uh, appeal in terms of conversation topics. As I was preparing for today, it struck me that what we'll talk about today, mikvah and coronavirus, sits at the intersection of, and you can add more, health, hygiene, faith, fertility, family, sex, and power. Um, and uh, and hopefully we'll get into some of those topics over the course of today. I'm joined by Maharat Ruth Belinsky-Friedman, who is one of the spiritual leaders of Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C., by Carrie Bornstein, the executive director of Mayan Chaim uh, in the Boston area. And hopefully Carrie will tell us a little bit about what that is and what it means. Um, and I'm joined by Dr. Rachel Rosenthal, who is a faculty member at the Jewish Theological Seminary and at the Shalom Hartman Institute. So first of all, thank you all so much for being available and being with us today. This is the first time we're doing a four-person panel on identity crisis, but there were so many angles and issues. Uh, it's really critical that you're all here. So first of all, let's get... It's not so niche after all, is it? Yeah, not so, not so, well, there's so many people to talk to about this topic. <laughs> so uh, so Car- yeah, Carrie, start us <laughs> off. Um, Mayim Chaim is a little bit of an unusual... Uh, kind of brand on the Jewish landscape as a, a mikvah, which has like a, in many ways a very traditional institution in Jewish life and, and is patronized primarily by uh, halachically observant Jews. That's not really what Mayim Chaim is entirely about. So maybe you could tell us a little bit just what a mikvah is and what Mayim Chaim is. Sure. So uh, Mayim Chaim Living Waters Community Mikvah and Paula Broni and Family Education Center, Inc., is our, our full name. Um, and it's actually all of those components are, are really important in, in who we are and, and what we do. So I'll, I'll use the name as a way of, um, explaining. Um, so, uh, Mayim Chaim literally means living waters, uh, which, which we, we want to translate right away. So like just in the essence of the name of the organization, we want to recognize that not everybody comes to this with a Hebrew background. Not everybody knows exactly what's going on. And there's a, a kind of transparency and education 
educational elements to what we do. Um, so we're a, a community mikvah, um, which is uh, the, the, the word community is there is really important because, as you alluded, um, the mikvah historically has been a, an organization that's been uh, frequented by a small segment of the entire Jewish population. And it was very important in our, our founding days to recognize that um, this is an institution that that could and should be owned by the full diversity of the Jewish community and uh, and not just for one one slice. Um, so it is it is a mikvah, which is uh, a a place that people come to to mark different kinds of life transitions with a, uh, a powerful and, and brief water ritual that we can get more more into, um, but used for uh, for traditional commanded sorts of reasons, and then a whole host of other interesting, newer, um, more creative reasons that are are uh, newer to the scene. Um, and and we are an education center, uh, Paula Brody and Family Education Center. So named named for by a woman. Um, this is an organization that has been uh, founded and led by women's leadership. We're open to all genders, and that's that's you know part of our conversation is like how do we get the men involved? So um, you know it's it's an interesting kind of perspective to come from. But um, we recognized in our founding in in 2004 that we had to go on a, a dual campaign here if, if we were going to bring people into this um, this ritual and open it up, we you know not only needed to raise a lot of money, but really raise awareness and um, and educate uh, what is this ritual, where does it come from, why do people do this, um, things like that. So um, so our our goal is to be as open and inclusive as possible um, and and welcome people in from all backgrounds. Great. So in the, like the kind of the taxonomy of mikva use, there's the we might call it like the classical mikvah use, which is uh, for women following their menstrual cycle to be able to resume marital relations with their husbands. You have uh, mikvah for conversion, uh, which makes it kind of a universally necessary uh, instrument. And then you have like the kind of unique value proposition of Mayim Chaim over the past 15 years, which is also introducing uh, ritual immersions as um, as a means of marking uh, all sorts of life cycle, other life cycle transitions, which, which really is how it kind of democratizes the institution for all sorts of Jews who might not access it for the first two. I would say not just about, yes, the reasons, but also who is involved. So it was very important and deliberate on our part that we wanted clergy and community members and, and leaders from all different backgrounds. Um, that's not only denominations, but it's races and genders and Jews by birth and Jews by choice and married, widows, single, divorced, yeah. tattooed, you know, all, like the whole gamut that this, you know, the idea is like, there, you know, this is for everyone. Tattooed and non-tattooed. That's the way we divide the world. We we do let in people who <laughs> do not have tattoos. tattoos. Right. It's correct. That's very yeah. pluralistic of you. <laughs> so um, I want to come back a little bit later, Carrie, to some of the kind of the very technical questions of what it means to run a water-based institution in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so I, want, I do want to come back to that because it's actually part of the data of the challenge here. But I want to bring Ruth and, and Rachel into the conversation. And Ruth, you wrote this piece just a few weeks after the 
after the pandemic started called what do I risk if I go to the mikvah? What do I risk if I don't go? I, I don't, you don't need to recapitulate all of that. It'll be available to our listeners, but tell us a little bit about what you were seeing as the kind of problematic in this moment, a couple of weeks after the pandemic hit, and especially from the kind of unique vantage point that you have as female clergy in an Orthodox community, which is uh, where you're going to see kind of critical mass of necessary ritualized timed usage of the, of the mikvah. Yeah, so it was um, a totally a crazy time. And, um, you know, so I'm in D.C. and our shul has a mikvah, um, a Moshem officially the director. And so as soon as it hit and the, there were, you know, I'm so grateful to Rabbi Dr. Lila Kachgen for sharing her enormous wisdom with a group of us who run mikvahs. And, and she hosted numerous conference calls and also spoke with me privately about how to make sure that the mikvah itself was as safe as possible. And so I say that I'm in D.C. specifically because I'm not in New York. Right. And D.C. and New York in March were were different places. And I felt like, okay, you know, she's giving us guidance. Um, It's guidance that we're able to meet. Um, You know, we immediately shut down for anything that was not Anita, you know, halachic women menstrual cycle related immersion. There is no showering on the premises. Bring your own towels. We really cut down like on everything to make it as bare bones as possible. You know, I felt like really that it was my obligation as long as it was safe and reasonably as safe as, let's say as safe as possible, that it was my obligation to stay open. And what I saw was really interesting. I really saw it mainly on Facebook, but also on a couple different mikvah listservs that I'm on where so many people, um, let's say largely women, but maybe not exclusively in New York, were expressing fear about going to the mikvah and also in many instances insisting that the mikvah will close and enormous anger at the rabbinic establishment, whatever the rabbinic establishment is, orthodox rabbinic establishment, I should say, for not finding a way to fix this. Um, and for that, at the same time, you started to see people also have davening on Zoom, prayer services. Now, I don't know any orthodox synagogue that is treating Zoom like a full in-person prayer service, but there was this really strong feeling that they figured it out when their own needs are at risk. And when it's about us, when it's about the women, they're not finding a way to work around it. And my reaction to that was one of empathy in that Clearly, women were speaking from a place of fear and anger, but also total confusion. Because to me, you know, you can fiddle with, can you have Kaddish on Zoom? Can you only have it in person, right? There's more halachic wiggle room. Whether or not you can have sex if you've gone to the mikvah is pretty cut and dry, right? It's a black and white answer. And the answer is no, you have, like, mikvah is an essential component of that halacha, of, you know, of this ritual and and of its legal standing. And so I was just really struck that there were people still having this conversation and how were these dynamics, you know, how was it not more obvious what the answer was? And so what I realized is just like to try to, what I, the reason I wrote the piece is because I was trying to cut through some of the anger and the anxiety around it and try to present the facts on the ground. And actually, I think I wrote it between 11 and 11.45 p.m. on a Thursday night because I was like up late yelling on Facebook book like I'm sure many of us have spent a lot of our days in the past three months and I realized people are not speaking the same language and like I want to try to write an outline to try to help us guide these conversations and that just is what came out of my hands onto the keyboard great so I want to do want to come back to the when you said like women wanted this to get fixed and yet it is not a particularly easy thing to quote-unquote fix I am curious about what are the range of options that people wanted did they want was it they wanted permission from their rabbi to have sex with their husbands without going to the mikvah? 
Probably not. Or was it, we have to figure out some way of being able to access mikvah ritual. But let's, we'll come back to that in, in a moment, because I think that's kind of at the crux of this issue. Rachel, um, you've written a number of um, of highly personal, but also very learned pieces in Tablet, one of them in April called What the Talmud Can Teach Us About Infertility in the Coronavirus Era. Uh, you talked in that piece and in other pieces about both the experience of the suffering through infertility and, um, and the need for more communal conversation around miscarriage. Obviously, this moment, and you're in New York and not in D.C., where this is the primary spike has been over the last few months. Can you tell us a little bit about how you were thinking about this issue as it hit the community? And you can speak both personally and professionally as a, as a scholar and teacher of Talmud as well. But what's your what was kind of your entryway into this uh, this communal conversation? Sure. So I've never been on a call before where I was the only one who wasn't the director of a mikvah. So this is a a new experience for me. But the thing that I was experiencing and Ruth started hitting on this a little bit was that. So as as Yehuda said, I uh, my husband and I have been experiencing infertility. Um, I had three miscarriages and then we started the uh, IVF process and then the IVF process got shut down across the entire country. And one of the questions that we had to, to think about in that moment was we didn't know at that point how long clinics were going to be shut down. They've now mostly reopened throughout the country, including here in New York where we are. But one of the questions we had to think about was knowing on one hand that we do have the history of miscarriage and on the other hand, knowing that we didn't know how long this process was going to go was the question of did we want to start trying on our own and seeing what that would would look like but the other piece of it was that we live on the upper west side of manhattan and the coronavirus was everywhere and there are a couple of things about new york so the first thing to mention about new york was that the the city was totally shut down i've lived here my entire life i've never seen anything like it the only thing we heard was sirens all of the time there were sirens and the other piece is that the mikvah in our neighborhood the west side mikvah sees dozens and dozens of women on a regular night. And so it's actually a really different conversation than it is if you live in a place where one, two, three women a night use the mikvah, because then it's easy to schedule people. It's easy to space them in between. And so in addition to this really fraught conversation about what was this pandemic going to mean for the world in general and for our neighborhood and for our families, it also meant what was it going to mean in terms of our ability to build the family that we wanted and knowing that we're in our 30s and that time doesn't last forever. And then there was this question of basically, was I willing to do what honestly felt to me like endangering my life or endangering the life of others because there are people who work at the mikvah, both the person who checks you at the mikvah, but also the cleaners at the mikvah. Was I willing to risk those people's lives to think about what it meant for my husband and I to potentially try to conceive naturally and and have a family? And the thing that I was feeling in this moment was the degree to which I knew that no one was going to give me permission, no one was going to give me a hetzer to say, like, sure, go have sex and try to conceive without going to the mikvah. The thing that really struck me, and Ruth's piece actually really spoke to me because um, it was an exception to this, was the lack of compassion that I saw in the in the conversation. And I think that part of what's part of what was really difficult was people were just saying, well, of course you can't go to the, of course you can't have sex if you don't go to the mikvah. Whereas people said, oh, we understand it's so difficult for you not to be able to say Kaddish and how can we be compassionate for you in this space? And I just wanted someone to say to me, this is really, really difficult. And the, the piece that I brought in, the text that I brought in and the tablet piece is this Gemara from Yevamot where these women come before rabbis and say, we want to have children. And the rabbis say, well, you don't have an obligation to have children, which is an interesting conversation for another time that women are technically not obligated in the mitzvah of being fruitful and multiplying, which is interesting. Yeah, and it's, it seems to be it's because they think that it, it endangers women, right? And we don't make mitzvot about things that endanger people's lives. But it is difficult for men to fulfill the obligation without women. 
And so what you see in these stories is the women say, yes, but I want to have children for other reasons, right? There are other reasons this is important to me. And then in those cases, the rabbis say, oh, in that case, definitely we'll compel the divorce so you can go uh, marry somebody else and hopefully get to build those families. And I wanted someone to say, like, yes, we understand the pain that you're in and we're not sure what the solution is, but we understand this is difficult. Instead of either saying to me, it's safe to go to the mikvah, what's your problem? Or, okay, well, then you, maybe you don't get to have the family that you want to have. There's a lot of a lot of openings for us to explore here. One of the things that I just can't seem to get away from, though, is let's just pause for a second and reflect on this ritual as a gateway um, and what it does to decision-making and to intimacy. It's one of the strangest pieces of our tradition, right? Which is that the most intimate experience that that a couple will share is mediated through a ritual that requires leaving the home and requires, as you said, Rachel, outsiders. There are other people who may be people who check you at the mikvah, or even if you manage to not, to not go through that system, there's somebody who's, you know, running the mikvah, doing payroll, and there's other people who are cleaning the mikvah. I guess I want to just unpack together with you, like, how do we understand what's going on here in terms of the whole... The whole thing is rooted in privacy. We actually, one of the, there were plenty of rabbinic texts on this actually about what happens in the bedroom stays in the bedroom. And and the whole premise of, the whole premise of a culture of modesty is that people's sex lives are actually not out in public. That's part of what it means to have a kind of a, a kind of traditional, quote unquote, um, according to the rabbinic tradition, uh, sex life. So what, how do you think about just conceptually what it, what it means for this intimate ritual to actually be part of the public discourse and for the, for the need, you know, Ruth, to your comment of like someone else deciding how to help people like continue or discontinue their sex life. How do you all think about it and process that. One of the things I would say is that um, a phenomenon that many, if not most, if not almost all mikvahs have is lack of female leadership in the board or who actually runs it. And I think that there's a huge, I'm not usually one of you know those those women who says, this is why women, you know, should be able to run everything, you know, because it's so important and enough. Like, I think it's more complicated. I think men can be wonderful leaders and some women can be terrible leaders. But in this particular instance, I think that really highlights a lot of it where we have had women who have been, we, we've been spacing immersions out both day and night in order to make sure that we're safely accommodating as many as possible. Um, you know, so we've kind of taken a lot of the halakha leniencies and just run with them. And so first of all, you know, we can have just um, attendance there. Um, att- having attendant with you is optional um, in our mikvah, but also it means that a woman can just text me and see if she can pick up the key and just, you know, come at a time when we know no one else is going to be there with her husband even. And that minimizes encounters with anyone else, right, in terms of germs and the virus and also just means that she can take charge of a lot of that for herself. And it also means that like, I, I get it. I get what it's like to, you know, have the kids running around and we should be trying to deal with this. And also having dealt with some um, fertility struggles in myself um, in my life earlier, you know, it's that I kind of feel like it checks off a lot of the boxes and that I see that women who go to other mikvahs don't really have the luxury of doing that. Where, you know, if you go to a mikvah's website, if it has a website, it's not even always clear who's in charge, who to call if you have an issue, um, if you have a question, like any of that, and you're really left, you know, I, I understand what a lot of women felt that they were really surrendering themselves to people, you know, their lives, um, the control over their lives to people they didn't even know who they were, but all they knew was that they themselves had no say in that. And I think that, you know, that's something really interesting emerging. But that's, I mean, that's what I want to push out a little bit, which is 
there is a kind of suspension of their lives to people who are making decisions about their sex lives. But that was already true prior to the coronavirus. <laughs> the whole the whole business of Hilchot Nida, of the laws of Nida, are suspending your aspects of your bodily life and sex life to rabbinic decision makers, the institutions around it. So is this merely an accelerant of something that there was already something um, troublesome underneath? Or, or did it kind of, do you sense that it kind of opened up or catalyzed something totally different than the way that pe- that that women who were who saw themselves caught right now that they normally responded to the to the halachic process about I don't, any I don't takers know. on that I one think, yeah i mean i feel like <laughs> well i don't want to just like rush to an answer like again you know this is you know something i spoke with a few women about like i'm not in new york i take for granted like to me it's so obvious of course we'll stay open i think i sort of initially took for granted that i had access to you know to experts in this field like rabbi kajdin and that i you know of course i would be making the decision that was safest and not the most halakhically convenient so i don't i don't want to like speak for women in other communities dealing with other situations um i like not sure if i totally accept your premise in that i think halakha governs all sorts of parts of our lives like when you can have ice cream unless you're like me and rachel and go vegetarian because it's and you can always have ice cream. Um, but, you know, when you like whether you've had meat first or, or anything, um, and this is just something very private. And I think that we as a society have developed a very strong, appropriate sense of privacy and, and that we, we've seen the dangers of, when, of, you know, and what motivates some people to inappropriately get involved in other people's sex lives. So I think we're more sensitive to it. But I don't necessarily know that it's so unusual that halacha governs this area of our lives, given that it governs everything. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I typically think of the mikveh as like not a, uh, a public, like it, that it is it doesn't require a minion, right? You don't, it doesn't need to be done so much like according to the group. And that, that I think is very freeing in terms of our work. You know, there's this core ritual and you do you, you do you, you like it's, there's no bearing actually the way that a mikvah is constructed. There's no way that somebody by definition, like you can, you know, the, the mikvah joke, you can push a bleeding pig into the mikvah and it's like, okay, it's going to be gross maybe, but it's not going to make the mikvah less kosher for the next person coming in, right? So I think that that gives a lot of openness and flexibility where it allows a person to, you know, go in with uh, somebody to who can let them know that they went totally under the water and say kasher and say amen to their blessing or not. And people can have singing if it will not now in COVID. But, uh, you know, like there's there's a lot of creativity with this ritual um, and a lot of a lot that's very freeing. You know, conservative rabbi, you want to have a conversion this way. Reform rabbi, you want to have a conversion that way. And, you know, or two different reform rabbis have different ways of doing it. Things like, OK. And so to me, I don't I don't think of it in that like kind of boundaried sort of way. Um, and I think it's also, it's important to acknowledge that people who use the mikvah, I think, have de- very different relationships to this question. And so some people are visiting 
because they have to and they feel commanded and they don't really want to do it, but they have to do it. And, you know, Rachel, maybe that speaks to some of the lack of sensitivity in, in what you're experiencing. I really appreciate what you shared, but it may be because there's this assumption of like, well, you don't really want to be doing this anyway. So, you know, what do you care if you can't? And I think it's important to acknowledge that there, you know, for many people, um, we've seen this tremendously in, in the Boston area and through our work through the Rising Tide Network, which uh, Ruth Smikva is a, is a part of in Mikva's all over the country, that like, there are people who are actually want to do this and miss it when it's not there and like have a different view and different relationship to the commandedness of it, whether they are commanded or not. But that's like maybe a slice for some, but for many, it's like it has been reclaimed in a different kind of way. I think that's a really important point that, that Carrie made, and I want to just make sure we we amplify that. The the ambivalence or the hostility towards mikvah is not only because of coronavirus, that I know many women who hate going to the mikvah, and they do it because they feel obligated, but they don't find the experience to be spiritual, they don't find it to be meaningful, they don't like standing naked in front of people they don't know otherwise, and their mikvah might not give them a choice, right? I know women who are sexually active outside of the context of marriage who feel like they have to wear a wedding ring and or a head covering when they go to the mikvah and pretend that they're married in order to be able to immerse. I also know women who love going to the mikvah and there are women who just see it as a normal part of life. They feel ambivalent towards it the same way, right? The same way it wouldn't occur to them necessarily, assuming they're keeping kosher, to put cheese on a hamburger. They just go to the mikvah. It's just part of the ritual. But you know, this idea that the anxiety, I think part of the reason that the coronavirus really heightened this conversation was because this conversation actually needed to happen before. Because there is a a sense among women who feel obligated to go to mikvah, which are different than people who go to mikvah by choice. Among some of those women, that that's something that they they do because they have to, but they don't like it. Like after the Ferendelska scandal um, happened in DC, I know a lot of women who just said, I'm done with this mitzvah, right? And there are you, know, you can talk about whether you think that that's acceptable or not, but to me, that was a reasonable response to what was happening, and I was not married at the time. I also can say that for my first year of marriage, I felt tremendous anxiety every time I had to go to the mikvah. And I, I go to the West Side Mikvah, which is actually a great mikvah. Like, the mikvah lady at the West Side Mikvah is a wonderful person. I like her so much. I've used her for educational opportunities. But I found the experience so fraught for a number of reasons that I'm not going to go into right now. So I think it's important that we remember that coronavirus really brought this conversation out and it exacerbated the questions because then for some people it also felt like a life and death thing. But this idea of ambivalence about mikvah or even anger about mikvah is not is not actually new. It's just that I think the conversation has burst forward right now. If the anxiety and ambivalence about it is it not new, is it fair to say that part of the reason that it amplifies in a moment like this is because... I don't know, the combination of the fact that like people are saying what they think on social media more and there's a more pressing public urgency makes for a conversation that probably was out there but private and among women uh, before and now is just part of the public fodder. Like I assume what you're saying, Rachel, is that there's a lot of anxiety and ambivalence among many women about mikvah. Do women talk to each other about their ambivalence about mikvah or is there a prevailing ethos? I'm, I'm not trying to sound like naive or probing. I'm just curious, like what what is the actual lived lived religious experience in communities where there's mixed feelings and, and ambivalence and anxiety around this? What is that? Because there is something different about when it starts to become an issue for public debate on the Times of Israel blog. Um, I mean, I can only speak to my own experience and friends and my I, I live in a particularly unusual 
subset, I think, um, having like having a PhD in Talmud and having spent four years learning at Trisha before where Ruth was my cover. So it's nice to be with her here. Oh, no kidding. Um, yeah. Yeah. We go way back. So um, I can only well, speak Carrie to that. Well, Carrie and I used to throw a Super Bowl party together. So we're also. So there, it's, it's, you know, it's exactly <laughs> <Bam>. the same. <laughs> um, so, but I, I, I think that. Yes, because I think that before women who felt obligated to go to mikvah didn't feel empowered to say, I don't want to do this for the most part. And that was where the Freundel incident was in, was interesting because there was a flare up of women saying, I don't want to do this. And then it died down and then coronavirus brought that back up again. I mean, for me, like there was never a question for me when I got married that I was going to go to the mikvah. But I, I wasn't leaving my house at all in March, basically. I would like try to go out and get fresh air, but I wasn't going to the grocery store. I wasn't going to the drugstore. I wasn't seeing my family. And the idea that I was going to enter this superhuman enclosed space that's in a basement with someone who I don't know anything about them, like that seemed insane to me, right? And so on one hand, I understood what the halakha was. So I think that for, I, I wonder, I can't say this for sure, but I wonder if for women who already felt this ambivalence, coronavirus became sort of an excuse to articulate it because then it wasn't just about, I don't like this or it feels uncomfortable or this area of halakha bothers me because they then could put their finger on, actually, I feel like I'm in danger. And where there might have been some sort of psychological challenge previously, now it felt physical. And I think the expectation was that it'll be easier to understand when people are articulating, I feel physically in danger. And I think part of the reason people got so angry was they actually felt like the response was still the same way if people said, I find this psychologically difficult, which is too bad, you have to do it anyway. Our doors are open and we're ready for the summer. That means you can sign up for conversations, lectures, and electives at the Hartman Institute's Month of Learning. All together now, Jewish ideas for this moment. You can register for the program and sign up for events at bit.ly slash Hartman Summer. For decades, Jewish leaders from across North America have traveled to Machon Hartman in Israel to learn alongside inspiring faculty and meet old and new friends in the warmth of the Jerusalem summer. This year, we won't be able to gather in Jerusalem, but we have opened the doors of our Beit Midrash and have invited everyone inside free of charge. All Together Now is a month-long celebration of ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. Join hundreds of Jewish leaders between June 29th and July 23rd, as over 60 of our scholars from Israel and North America address the moral and theological questions facing us at this moment of crisis and opportunity. Are you registered? Have you signed up for your sessions yet? Just go to bit.ly slash Hartman Summer and register for free, but hurry because some sessions have limited space. So, so let's go back to the to a little bit of the power questions of like who's making this decision for whom and how should that be conducted? Because Ruth, you're in your piece, you mapped out this is what this is like the variables that should take into consideration, but it didn't totally give like a pathway of this is how a community should make these decisions. You know, I'll confess like I have moments when it like dawns on me that like I'm not the same person religiously that I was when I grew up <laughs> of like moments of like, oh, wait, maybe I'm not actually Orthodox. I, I know I've known that's been true for a while, but like it's really true now. I was like I was on some Facebook thread earlier in the coronavirus crisis when someone was debating this. And I was like, wait, why aren't Orthodox rabbis telling women that they can just not have to go to the mikvah, that they can just take showers at home? And people were like, go away. Like, that's not. That's not how this, that's how that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Um, and it, it was a moment of like rabbinic will halachic way. Like why why not? Like if the goal is to 
save people's lives and to enable people to feel that they're performing a ritual, <laughs> let's find ways to do it. But that clearly was wrong. <laughs> so I guess Ruth, like, what, what's the what's the second chapter of this beyond the analysis of the problematics here to like, what's, what should happen or what should have happened on the West Side or in D.C. or in Boston and when this first kind of clicks in? I love that story so much because for me, I've had the opposite experience where I feel like this this coronavirus has like solidified for me. I've never felt so from since when then when um, the virus hit in March because you know sort of I guess what I see and I think I just want to first God forbid I do not want to imply for a second that everything that we've been discussing and Rachel's been highlighting isn't completely a thousand percent valid. But I do want to add another layer that I observed, and I say this also as having witnessed this conversation with Kitney Oat, was that I think that it might have been generational, I don't know. But I saw amongst a lot of people this attitude of like, there's a pandemic, we don't know what to do, we've never lived in this type of environment before, halakha is cute and nice to do when like everything's going perfectly, but now that there's a crisis and I don't know when I can get to the grocery store next or like when my Instacart delivery is arriving, like we have to cancel it, right? So it's like, well, like, of course you can fix Nita, right? I mean, like, yeah, we go to the mitzvah when like things are fine, but like now it's it, like, it's crisis. Like, of course you can go take a shower, right? Like, obviously. And and the number of people who were just like, kidney oat. Now we now all have to be able to eat kidney oat. And I was like, Okay, but why? Ham right? sandwiches. Like, let's if we're at it. Ham <laughs> sandwiches. Exactly, right? Like, <laughs> let's identify the problem and see if kidney oat solves it. And it doesn't if you spend two minutes thinking about it, right? Like, and, and so the path I was advocating for is it's okay if your Seder is matzah and cream cheese, right? But like, you don't have to eat your peanut butter all of Pesach because there's a coronavirus, right? And, and so I think that, um, I think part of what we're seeing is that many of us, thank God, um, have never lived through crisis before, right? We've inherited the narratives of those who sacrificed for us, right? My grandmother lived in the, you know, in Shanghai and suffered and suffered and suffered so that I think God could be sitting here, you know, enjoying my privilege, etc. right? But my generation, I mean, you know, there's individual trauma, but there's no collective trauma like that. There's no collective restriction. And I think that this was part of that is this panic of like, what do we do? Because we just don't know know how to live a halachic life when it is not one that is community enabled and supported um that enables us to do at least certainly again i don't want to speak for any individual narrative but certainly on a communal on a communal level and so that's that's why i say i joke that i've never felt so from it's because i feel like you know i saw what was happening and i and i did say you know you can't just blanket allow kidney oat in my opinion and there are some who may disagree you can't just take a shower you know, so that you can, you know, show your recognition of mikvah as a ritual because you're too afraid to go. Um, I do want to say, and I want to just add this, and this is something that has been a, a, a sticking point for me also, is that if you're going to accept an Amazon package, let alone go to the grocery store, right, you are putting yourself at a at minimal risk. Um, and certainly there are a lot of people, you know, at much bigger risk so that you can have that experience. The mikvah, certainly at least my, our mikvah, and I know this is true of other mikvahs, were run and are continuing to be run in a place in a way that is maximally safe. Obviously, no one can say 100%, but really, like, you know, and, and the, like I said, my piece, the, the onus is on the mikvah, right, to be able to make sure that they can do it safely. But that this, you know, if I I'm, I'm don't feel bad saying that, like, there are a couple things we have to do, and if the mikvah is being run as safe as humanly possible, 
maybe this is one of them, you know? And I, I think it's tough. You see, hear those stories about women who used to break through the ice in Eastern Europe to go to the mikvah. You know, we always kind of rolled our eyes at those stories. They're so ridiculous, you know, like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. But now I sort of get it a little bit where that might be coming from, right? Um, not saying that I would ever recommend do it. And Lord knows I can tell you I would not be the person to do it myself, but to hack through the ice, I mean. But, you know, like I, I get a little bit of where that idea of like, Religion isn't something you just do when it's convenient um, and, and that it, it's something that we take very, very seriously. Um, and as long as the government says it's OK, like, yeah, and you get to totally you get to choose if you don't go, um, but, but that we but, can't just cancel it. So let me interrupt that for a second, which is part of the problem here is religious authority in the whole coronavirus and institutional leadership. Carrie runs an institution. I do, too. We have been we basically institutions are like ours are already we're not on we're not listed in phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. Like we're not barbershops, we're not supermarkets. It's not like obvious where we fit in in those choices. So we're kind of on our own. Uh, I'm married, I live with a head of school and the, the information that went to heads of school was abysmal. It was like changing by the day. And in New York, you had to deal with the added layer that like de Blasio and Cuomo were like litigating their dispute among the power choices of who was making these choices. So schools don't know who to listen to. So number one, like, and I know you're not totally saying this, but like the mikvah sanitary, maybe the religious motivation is to push people to go. But part of the problem here is that like religious leaders, forget about institutional leaders, religious leaders don't, didn't really know what to do. And I think that's what I heard loud and clear from a number of these pieces. And I'm curious, like what should have been the playbook? For rabbinic authority in a moment like this, knowing that like they're not the there's no history here, there's no precedent. But let's assume that they're not getting real clear information from government, and let's assume that you know four months ago none of us had real information. Even like we're all now experts in epidemiology, but you know there was less so a few months ago. What should religious leaders have done in the first week of this pandemic with mikvah as a looming challenge? What would you have wanted them to do? I think immediately consult with experts on this. Um, I also just want to um, just note that my impression is a lot of, by the time the, the virus hit, a lot of shul rabbis were already doing funerals um, and tending to, to congregants in absolute crisis. And yeah. so, um, I, and I know that it came up actually a couple times with pre-Pesach stuff that someone like, again, in DC, I, we were, I was like, I took over like the IRF Pesach thing because the rabbis in New York were literally doing funerals. They couldn't, they, you know, I mean, I think you have to just consult with experts immediately, right? Just like we did for shuls, you know, what and we see with this reopening chaos of minions and six feet and all that, you know, I, I think figure it out immediately. Um, and I know that, that at times Rabbi Kajdan amongst others were in touch with, you know, CDC experts and, and all of that to really consult. Um, and if that means shutting down for a week to figure it out, I think, or even two nights, um, then you have to do that. Absolutely. This this rush to keep it open no matter what is terrifying. Rachel, what would you have wanted to see happen from in terms of rabbinic leadership in a moment like this? I wanted someone to say this is really hard. Right? And and like maybe that sounds like nothing, but I think that's actually the thing that would have made the biggest difference for me. Um and I say this as someone who has a sister who's a rabbi and my father-in-law is a rabbi, but I go to a shul without a rabbi, so I exist in sort of an interesting space. But I, I 
going back to what I was saying before about how mikvah is already really emotionally fraught, I think there's not, among male rabbinic authority figures, I think there's often not an understanding of the degree to which mikvah can, not for all women, for some women mikvah is totally fine, and for some women mikvah is amazing, and it's beautiful, and they love it, so I want to make sure we make that distinction, but I just wanted someone to say, like, we recognize that this is scary for you and we recognize that it's painful. And even if we can't say to you, like, we're going to give you permission to take a shower and not immerse and then be able to have sex with your husband. Um, and I recognize that for me and for my my husband, it was particularly fraught because we also had this element of, of conception. But um, it, it's it exists in a lot of ways for a lot of people. Right. What if one person in the couple is immunocompromised? And they keep what's called harchakot, which means they are literally not going to touch each other unless one person goes to the mikvah in this time that's incredibly scary where people need comfort. Are we going to say to them, you you have to put your life at risk or you have to live in your house with your spouse, but be unable to touch them, right? And, and just, I wanted someone to acknowledge the degree to which this question was actually different from kidney odon Right. And I say that as someone who like did not consider eating kidney oat on Pesach, but actually whether you have peanut butter or not is not emotionally fraught. And it's not, it doesn't involve you being in close quarters with people who you don't know where they've been or who else they've been exposed to. And I think what was lacking for me and the thing that drew, that drove me to write the second piece for a tablet about particularly this experience of infertility in the time of coronavirus was I just wanted someone to say, we understand that this is really painful for you. And, you know, in the Orthodox world in particular, one of the reasons that people like Ruth um, and also like the Yuetzet Halakha program um, coming out of Nishmat in, in Israel have been so important is because the idea that I'm going to like go talk to a man who I might not have a relationship with about my menstruation and be like, here is my underwear and what do you think of the color of the stain? Like, it, it just seems like it seems really crazy when you think about it. And even though mikvah affects partners also, right? Like my, my spouse does not go to the mikvah every month, but it affects our relationship if I don't go to the mikvah. So it affects both of us. And if I, God forbid, had gotten sick by going to the mikvah, he probably also would have gotten sick, right? It, this, but, but he wasn't the one who had to go and stand in this room and take off all of his clothing. And I'm lucky because I have a partner who said, it's up to you, right? I'm going to defer to you on what you want to do. Not everyone necessarily has that option. And I just wanted someone to say, we understand that you're scared. We understand that you don't feel safe. We, based on our understanding of conversations with the CDC, with how the virus travels, with bromide and chlorine and all of these chemicals, and if you bring your own things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we think that it's safe, but we understand if you don't feel safe and we have compassion for that decision. That's what I wanted, which is not actually a a ruling that's going to let me go and take a shower instead of going to the mikvah, but the emotional response that I was dying for was almost completely absent. Including, by the way, from some female clergy. Like this, this goes in both directions. It was not only absent from male clergy; it was absent from both sides. Carrie, you're actually running a mikvah, uh, and Ruth, I guess you are too. What are the variables? I mean, in real time, what what was actually available to you in terms of this decision making? Is the mikvah open now? How does that function for people? And and what kind of issues around trust or authority did you feel like your own stakeholders were dealing with when it came to to your mikvah and your decision making? Yeah. So we did make the decision to close. We're still closed. Um, we're in the process of our reopening plans. And I will say the decision to close down was among the hardest that I've ever faced. Thank God it wasn't just my decision. It was it was the board took this on entirely. And there was a real pull. I mean, the, the group was completely split, like literally 
we had 16 board members on the call and eight voted to close and eight voted to stay open, right? So this was like, this was challenging for everyone. We set it up in such a way that we needed a majority to stay open because that felt like the riskier move. And we wanted to know that we had a majority of the board who was willing to take that on. And ultimately, the the group, you know, just kept coming back to this question of pikuach nefesh. And if they're especially at that point in, you know, in late March, early April, where we didn't know a whole lot about the virus. And there are all these questions about transmission and the different ways and, and things like that. Like if there was any possibility that one person could contract this virus because of coming into our space, like, no, um, we weren't willing to take that on. Um, and, and, you know, personally, I was somewhat grateful to not have a vote <laughs> um, in that situation. It's I, I rarely don't have an opinion on something. Um, and, and this is you know, this was a time where I really had conflicting opinions on both sides. Um, because, you know, like you said, with, with you know, I'm, I'm imagining every single individual story of I've been trying to get pregnant for, you know, X number of years and my IVF cycle was just canceled and now I'm stuck, right? Um, and imagining the the woman who is about to get married and is converting before she gets married and now she can't come to the mikvah or woman who is in her ninth month of pregnancy and um, she wants to convert and become Jewish before her baby is born. Like there are serious implications to closing down a mikvah. Now, luckily in, in the Boston area there, you know, we knew that there were other mikvahs that were staying open and there are natural bodies of water, albeit super cold in April and whatnot. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think one of the things that was hardest was that we were consulting with rabbis and doctors. um, And and the, the thing that felt, you know, one of the things that felt most challenging to me was like, every doctor that I talked to had all kinds of opinions about Jewish law. And like, you know, every, every, every doctor was now a rabbi and every rabbi that I talked to was now a doctor. And it was like, like, let's, you know, I, I kind of wanted people to like focus on their expertise. Um, and, you know, rabbis give me your rabbinic stuff and doctors give me your doctor stuff. Now, I think one of the really interesting things that came out of all of that was that I, you know, from my vantage point, I was seeing rabbinic leadership really becoming active with with getting creative with halacha. And that's not to say, okay, let's disregard it. You can just eat kidney oat. Poor kidney oat is like really getting a bad rap here. Like, it's not to say just oh, disregard, take a shower. I would have been the first one to say like six months ago, like you can't just use a shower or a bathtub. Like it's, it's different. It's constructed in different ways. And like, that's not how it works. And it was fascinating to me to to learn with people who know their Talmudic stuff um, and looking in the sources and finding, hmm, there may actually be precedent here in a situation where people's lives are at stake. Um, there are possibilities for bathtubs and showers. And to me, that's like a huge blessing of a crisis like this is to be able to push towards creativity to not abandon a system of of tradition, but to like to see it anew because of the times that we're in. Um, so that's that's been some of the exciting work that I've seen happening. Yeah, I mean the the, the whole the trickiest part of this is why I keep coming back to the questions of authority is. Um, you know, and it's interesting to note, like, the difference between, Rachel, your position of it wasn't about, like, a radical shifting of authority. It was actually about the communication strategy of those in power. Like, had they found a way to speak more empathetically about what they what their 
what the users of a mikvah might need to hear in a particular moment. It might have altered the experience, which is very different from the substance of the ruling that they might have to do on one side or another. And by I, the way, yeah. if someone could have, if, sorry, if someone could have found me a leniency, I would have taken would have it, taken but it. I understood. Yeah. I mean, in a second, right. But I understood. I wish you came to our webinars, Rachel. <laughs> I love There's say, a recording the way, on our website. That, if you that your, yeah. your liturgy actually around miscarriage and immersing after miscarriage was very helpful to us. So thank you. But, um, right. But my point was that I understood that the majority of, um, rabbinic voices in the orthodox world, right? Because the conservative movement has been doing other things, actually. But the majority of voices in the orthodox world were not going to tell me that not immersing was an option. And so I sort of started with that as my beginning point. Now, if someone had said to me, there's a leniency and here's what it is, like that would have been great and I would have been happy to engage with it. But empathy and and sympathy felt like sort of the bare minimum of what I was looking for and that was lacking. Right. I mean, but this is, but it comes to, to me, this is like, I guess my, the core of my criticism of the orthodox power structures. So this is just, you know, like a trigger warning. Um, <laughs> you know, on one hand, like it has been an incredible trajectory over the last 30 years to watch certain aspects of Jewish law really get transferred to the domain of women's rabbinic leadership, whether in what is seen as the liberal side of orthodoxy, Maharat, etc., or in the centrist side of orthodoxy, like the Yoatzot, the halachic advisors, women who are kind of invested with halachic authority to, that it, it makes sense, like those should be the people you go talk to about this. But if, when push comes to shove, communal policy around mikvah is not ultimately handed to the same authority figures, then you've created a double problem, which is that you've also divested the men from the day-to-day handling of this issue and probably weakened their capacity as leaders to empathize with the challenges themselves. So ultimately, if you don't actually create dramatic shifts in what authority and power look like in a community, you you handle the mundane day-to-day uh, tasks that are involved with uh, with these particular functions, but you haven't really created a pathway for the for the rethinking or the remapping of decision-making when the time actually comes. I'm not going to put you on the spot to respond to that. You're welcome to. Now, last question for all of you, which is, you know, I'm sure some of our listeners, this is the this is a window into a side of the Jewish community that is not, it's not one that they necessarily experience directly. Um, what do you, what do you recommend our listeners read, um, watch, or look at to to think about mikvah, to think about some of these questions. I'm, I'm getting a, a shaking head. You know, obviously that we're, you know, Rachel's piece, uh, Ruth's piece, Carrie, you have a whole website full of resources, um, an essay, an article, a book. Um, what, it, it, on any of the pieces that we've picked up and talked about, you know, people have, got, people have time. So for give people their <laughs> beach summer reading on uh, the theoretical beach summer reading on this topic. Any recommendations? <laughs> I mean, I want, like, we we created our blog, my Mchaim blog, oh God, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago at this point, because if you Googled mikvah, like, what you would see was just terrible. Like, it was all of these horror stories or just bad experiences. It's, like, not something that's desirable. And what we were seeing in Boston was, like, you've got, you know, a teenager who's coming to the mikvah before her bat mitzvah, and she's saying, like, I felt the presence of God in the water. Like, we got to share those stories, right? And, and like, help people understand that there's, like, yes, the horror stories exist, and um, it actually doesn't have to be like that. So, you know, I'll, I'll put in a, pl- a plug both for um, our blog on the Mayim Chaim website, because they're just, they're super powerful 
first person narratives and stories, which I just, I always, I, I gravitate towards. And I think it's like to hear people in their own words is, is super powerful. Um, and the videos that we have on the website that are like these short five minute documentary films that show a, a person's experience at the mikvah. And I think particularly for people who might be newer to this topic, it helps explain a lot about like what we're talking about and how this works. And, and I, I cry every time I watch them in a good way. So they're quite, quite wonderful. I was just looking at my bookshelf to see if there was a particular on my, on my Nita shelf to see if there was anything in particular I recommended. Nothing, nothing jumped out at me specifically, which isn't to say that it's, yeah. it's not out there. Um, you know, look, I think if people are interested in the legal pieces, like to the degree to which you can access responsive literature, which is going to be more or less difficult depending on your native language, um, certain movements do publish responsa in English, so you can find them. Um, things coming out of the Orthodox movement, if they're in English, tend to be more stringent than they need to be, so that's just something to know. But the question of how different people have responded to this question of mikvah, particularly in this moment, like there is stuff out there. You know, if I wasn't going to start teaching summer school in a week, I maybe would take on the project of like making some sort of podcast compilation. (laughs) But I think um, in addition to those personal pieces, like I think there's there's something valuable about the idea of um, looking also at the legal pieces, because for people for whom the idea that Jewish law is binding is not necessarily familiar, I think it's really hard to access anything that we're that we're talking about here, because if you don't think that this is binding, then of course you wouldn't go to the mikvah during a pandemic, right? Unless you need to convert, which, you know, those have also been canceled and postponed, which seems incredibly difficult, you know, so entering into this space where you have this idea of obligation, uh, what that might mean and look like to the degree to which people can access those texts, I think might be an interesting educational piece for people who don't necessarily exist in, in that realm. Ruth, anything? <laughs> you haven't been reading my facial expressions until now. No, I, I think I think Rachel makes a very very good point. Um, I'm also happy to send like the source sheets, explanatory sheets that I made up when I first started teaching classes. You know, whatever, seven eight years ago. I'm like tempted to say read something by like Rebecca Traster or like any reporting on the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Not chas v'shalom, God forbid, to compare it. But I think to appreciate that there are entire systems um, that are built on or at least survive and thrive on women either not having voices or women being in environments in which they don't they have instinctual reactions and then have to silence them or told those are wrong um, and to understand that's a lot of the background of certainly where you know the tension um, towards mikvah I think arises is when you realize, and I think this is this is really something that to me was very important and that I mentioned in my piece, is that yes, there's the halakhic legal realm, and that's what I like think mostly focused on, but also recognize that like there's a there's a reason that many women came to the conclusion of well, we can't trust our rabbis to actually be looking out for our own safety. Um, and that doesn't arise out of nowhere. And I know, Yehuda, that is something you are also unfortunately very familiar with, which is that power systems often don't actually really protect the people that they claim to be representing. And that um, certainly, you know, I'm in D.C., I have to bring up, you know, the Ferndale scandal. Um, and we opened our mikvah three months after it. And I think all of our policies will forever be informed um, by that. But that you had tens of women who had 
instincts um, and feelings for years and basically felt like no one else felt that way and so they ignored them or even were told, no, you're wrong. And that that's how people mistrust their, their authority and their leaders and even the people you know in uh, who are supposed to represent them, they actually feel a lot of animosity towards. And so, you know, I think leaders really need to hear that very, very carefully and think about how they model their power and their institutions in order to actually make sure that people's voices are heard. That's great. Uh, I'll add mine to this reading list. Uh, I think it's kind of critical reading for the last uh, uh, couple generations of Jewish thought. Our Rachel Adler's first piece in the late 70s when she identified as an Orthodox woman, which is a beautiful kind of explanation, defense, articulation of the value of mikvah. Uh, about 20 years later, once she then identified as a Reform theologian, she writes a critique of her previous position um, uh, in a in Tikkun uh, magazine on, on the problematics of Nida and mikvah. I don't think you can read one without the other, because uh, I think they actually tell a very powerful story of the varieties and possibility of Jewish theology, especially, and they tell also a story of kind of the history of Jewish feminism. One of the most staggering pieces, though, of Rachel Adler's second piece is when she said it took her a long time to write this piece and to change her mind because she had never seen precedent of a theologian who admitted that they were wrong. And independent of the question of like the substance of what she was arguing, it was also this incredible kind of display of epistemological humility by a theologian, the willingness to say, I was right about this, I was wrong about that, and to understand the the deeply human ways in which theology is supposed to unfold. I, I'm really grateful to all of you uh, for taking this time. I'm really grateful to all of you for your courageous leadership on behalf of your communities and yourselves and your writing and, and your running institutions. This is a vital conversation for the Jewish people, and I'm really excited to have it out loud and not just on social media and not just in echo chambers. Thanks all for listening to this to our show this week, and special thanks to Rachel Rosenthal, Ruth Blinsky-Friedman, and Carrie Bornstein. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman, with music provided by SoCalled. In addition to the podcast, recordings of Identity Crisis are streamed on Facebook through Jewish Live. Please check our Facebook page for details about future recording times. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week, and thank you for listening.